All right, guys. So, sorry this one's a little bit late. So, we're going to talk about the progressive era, and this is going to run from 1900 to 1920. This was Bradley's topic for those of you who are keeping up. Anyway, so, the road to progressivism. This is going to start with the Greenback Labor Party of the 1870s. Now, it's wanting to thwart the power of the robber barons. And if you remember, those robber barons were like Carnegie and Rockefeller, uh, Vanderbilt, all those people that were trying to push these monopolies and to gain basically as much power as they possibly could when it could, you know, it comes to economic resources. Uh, they're, this, this Greenback Labor Party, they're also wanting to support organized labor and the institute of inflationary monetary measures all right now this greenback party is going to be primarily uh, funded and supported by farmers now there's also going to be a legacy of populi populism that's going to go with this progressivism because pro uh, progressivism is going to fail or not progressivism i'm sorry populism is going to fail uh, as a third party but it's going to have the potential influence for about 25 years after its failure in the 1896 election now these ideas that will carry forward are going to be things like railroad legislation the income tax which which ends up being our 16th amendment they're going to uh, expand <clears throat> currency and the credit structure there's also going to be this direct election of senators which is our 17th amendment that whole initiative referendum and recall the postal savings bank and the sub treasury plan of 1916 now though populism was geared to rural life many of its ideas are going to appeal to the urban progressives who are going to seek out to regulate trusts reduce political machine influence and remedy all these social injustices now with this rise of progressivism so we're moving from the greenback labor party to the po to populism to progressivism now these former mugwumps this m-u-g-w-m-w-u-m-p-s now these are the reform-minded republicans of this late 19th century era they're going to desire to return to the pre-monopoly america so back before these corporations were kind of taking over uh, men of wealth and social standings are going to lament the changes in america's political and social climate they're going to be due to the rise of industrialists so that monopoly the plutocracy and the idea of the oligarchy now granted we didn't have a true oligarchy but man there were a lot of uh really super rich dudes that were kind of paying for part of our government Anyway, uh, the Protestant Victorian ideals of uh, hard work and morality that would lead to success were now threatened by this nouveau riche, that super wealthy class, that leisure class, who basically seemed to thrive on the idea of conspicuous consumption. So as much as you could. All right. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, these earlier mugwumps. The, the leaders of these groups, uh, of these, these local communities, are going to be eclipsed by these political machines that are going to cater to big business and immigrants. In 1884, the Mugwumps were Republican reformers, and they're going to bolt from the party, and they're going to end up supporting the Democrat Grover Cleveland in the 84 election, 1884, obviously. Uh, the emerging middle class is going to sympathize with these mugwump views and they're going to want to return to equality of opportunity and moral reform 
Uh, there are some people that actually call this era the third great awakening. Now, this group is going to consist of political reformers, uh, what you would consider intellectuals. There will be women, journalists, the social uh, gospelites, and a league of professionals. They're going to feel that they are unrepresented, while the industrials and immigrants are going to be protected by bribery, labor unions, and political machines. Now, the progressives, they're going to believe an efficient government could protect the public interest and restore order to society. They're also going to see government as an agency of human welfare. Now, the specific issues for reform that uh, we're going to go into a little bit more later are going to be the excessive... Sorry, that was a uh, ambulance. Anyway, the excessive power of trusts, the political machines, the threat of socialism. There's going to be these squalid you know, that comes from squalor, uh, conditions in the cities. There's going to be uh, the working conditions for female labor and child labor. Consumer protection, voting reform, uh, conservation, which I'm sure y'all are getting, you know, the big talk in Chaz's class for that. <clears throat> Banking reform, labor reform. So this is working conditions and unionization. The, prohibit, uh, the prohibition of alcohol and female suffrage. Now, the progressive crusaders are going to create a reform movement that's not seen since the Second Great Awakening, hence the idea that this would be the Third Great Awakening. The progressivism also had a darker side, though, so because many of them were strongly nativist, which is something we talked about in class today, that you felt as though um, if you weren't part of that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant group, that you were, you know, you were, you were insignificant. The, the WASP group that we were talking about today felt, that it felt as though that they were superior to other groups. <clears throat> uh, some of them actually even embraced this idea of eugenics, and that's the belief that certain races were superior to others and inferior and should be prevented from breeding because eugenics actually gets into uh, you know, population control. Um, a lot of them are going to embrace the idea of what they felt like was a natural segregation of the races because they felt that this was a natural order of society. Now, some of the major reform issues, so we're going we're gonna to get into the trusts of political machines, uh, the living and working conditions when it came to the cities. Now, trusts are going to dominate the economy and political power. The competition was being eliminated by this oligarchy, and small businessmen were no longer able to compete, which kind of destroys the whole idea of a laissez-faire or a free market system, because competition is needed in order for the product to be better and the price to be lower. Now, there's that, also that plutocracy that I kind of mentioned earlier. This is where you have large numbers of politicians that are going to be dominated by trusts in your municipal, your state, and your federal government. Now, these political machines. Now, bosses control districts or cities, and they regularly accepted bribes from, uh, like, special interest groups. <clears throat> and in order to do this, or and the reason they were getting these bribes was so that they would give some kind of political favor. Taxpayers often paid the bill for this. Uh, immigrants were often enticed by machine bosses for their vote. So like when you were reading in the jungle talking about Yergis was paid to go, you know, put the ballot in the box. So he was paid to vote for a specific person. <clears throat> 
The municipal politics were now out of the hands of these civic-minded Americans and put into the hands of these bosses. New York City's Tammany Hall was the most notable example of the powerful machine politic. And this is going to be controlled largely by the Irish Americans. Now, the challenges that were due or, you know, we ended up having had to do with this enormous growth of the city. So you had urbanization. So between 1880 and 1920, there's going to be about 27 million immigrants enter the U.S., mostly from Eastern and Southern Europe, while a third of those are going to actually return home. Now, many of your rural Americans came to the city. They're going to be looking for work because there's going to be increased opportunities because, remember, agriculture is becoming more and more mechanized so you need fewer people you need fewer hands now the, the results of this are you know part of it's going to have to do with the living conditions a lot of the the areas are in these larger cities are going to be revolting you're going to have these dumbbell tenements they're going to be inadequate and they're going to be very unhealthy for families the city infrastructure was ill-equipped to deal with the population explosion uh, you have a lot of crime, there's going to be violence and gambling, lots of prostitution. This is going to be rampant throughout the cities, and the working conditions are going to be appalling. Uh, there's going to be women in child labor that are going to be savagely exploited. Children were paid much less than an adult, and women were paid a lot less than men. <clears throat> there's going to be an estimated half a million workers they are going to be wounded, and 30,000 were killed in industrial accidents you know and this is this is what was recorded if you remember from the book sometimes people would just kind of disappear in the lard vats the uh, AFL or the American Federation of Labor which is actually around today uh, it discouraged this labor legislation except when it came to child labor because previous pre-labor laws have been used against labor it wanted the government to stay out of the labor issues so that unions could bargain effectively without government interference so basically they just didn't want the government involved they wanted to be able to do the negotiating on their own okay so the analysts the progressive analysts many colleges are going to create separate social science departments of economics political science and sociology two of those i kind of sort of teach you can look at civics as political science it's very politicky anyway uh social science scientists are going to seek to analyze human society with the same objectivity that scientists use to study nature and also social science reflected a growing faith in the ability of people to analyze society and solve human problems. They're going to reject the whole idea of the survival of the fittest. That ideology is going to be thrown out the window. Uh, many of the social science professors and their students are going to end up being progressives. And between 1870 and 1920, college enrollment increased 400%. Yes, I said 400 right, So let's talk about John Dewey for a second. Now he's going to advocate for learning by doing rather than just studying the classics. So that's why, you know, the idea of being hands-on, that's why I give you guys the assignment to teach an assignment. Uh, he believed education for living and working played a crucial role in democracy, and he was also a big advocate for education, education? education for life, and that should be a primary goal of the teacher. And also the goal was to create socially useful adults. So, productive members of society. You've probably heard that before. <clears throat> the number of 17-year-olds who finished high school almost doubled in the 1920s to more than 25%. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but you've also got to think about the time. This is the 1920s. A lot of women were still not going to school, and it wasn't as encouraged, especially in the South. <clears throat> 
All right, Lester Frank Ward. Now, he's going to challenge this whole survival of the fittest ideology as well. He's going to also argue it was natural for people to control and change their social environment. So, like the laws and the customs and relationships among people in order to benefit from them. It was the role of government to shape society's destiny. So, like, legislation should address inadequate housing. That's just an example. Now, there's going to be a couple other uh, social scientists like Richard uh, Eli, Charles Beard, and Woodrow Wilson, who, uh, you know, later became the president. Uh, Eli was a professor at the University of Madison in Wisconsin. He was an economist, and he, he was a social gospelite who had a profound impact on Governor Robert La Follette in Wisconsin. Uh, Charles Beard he, Beard, he applied history to reform the corrupt city governments, and Woodrow Wilson, you know, he's a political scientist, we get his 14 points uh, later in World War One. <clears throat> the early progressive writers and the social critics were like Henry, uh, Henry Lloyd, he wrote Wealth Against Commonwealth in 1894, and he's going to criticize Standard Oil and its monopolistic practices, which, I mean, you know, he was getting a lot of criticism anyway. Uh, some saw this as the beginning of an investig of investigative journalism. Uh, Thorsten Veblen, uh, that's V-E-B-L-E-N. Uh, he wrote the theory of the leisure class in 1899. <clears throat> Not a good place to park. Sorry, I digress. Uh, he's also going to criti criticize the Nouveau Riche for its flaunting of wealth. And you've got Jacob Rees. Uh, he wrote how the other half lives in 1890. He was a photojournalist who's going to expose like the dirt, disease, and the misery of the rat-infested New York slums. And he's going to be heavily he's going to be yeah, he's going to heavily influence uh, progressives like Teddy Roosevelt. <clears throat> the socialists are also going to criticize the existing injustices. Uh, many of the European immigrants who had hated the, these are going to be people who hated the excess of uh, capitalism, and many of the progressives, like Woodrow Wilson, saw socialism as the biggest threat to the U.S. Alright, then there's the social gospel movement. This is going to be the late 19th century. This is going to emphasize the role of Christianity in reforming these urban societies. Josiah Strong, uh, and then, like, uh, Washington Gladden, G-L-A-D-D-E-N. These were leading preachers of the movement. It's going to influence reforms like the Settlement House Movement and the Salvation Army. Muckrakers. So, journalists are going to attempt to expose the evils of society. Popular magazines like McClure's, Cosmopolitan... Uh, colliers and everybody's are going to emerge, and these are going to fear legal reprisals. These muckraking magazines are going to go to great pains and expense to verify their material. Uh, like in one case, there was uh, $3,000 that was used to verify Ida Tarbell's article on John D. Rockefeller. The Yellow Press also played a role, <clears throat> especially Pulitzer and Hearst. Now, Lincoln Steffens wrote Shame of the Cities in 1902 and detailed the corrupt alliance between big business and the municipal or the city governments. Ida M. Tarbell, she published a devastating expose on Standard Oil in McClure's magazine. 
She also talked about Rockefeller's ruthless tactics that he used to crush competition, including, so she kind of had a little vendetta here, including her father's oil business. All of this was carefully detailed. In 1911, the Standard Oil Trust was broken up as it was seen as a bad trust. Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, you guys know all about that. Talks, you know, it has the graphic depictions of the unsanitary conditions and the packing plants. This is going to spark a reaction to the meat industry. It's going to lead to the eventual regulation under... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt. It's also going to inspire the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act. So, that, you know, we get support kind, of, <clears throat> kind of where we get the FDA. <coughs> All right. Then you have da- uh, David Phillips, The Treason of the State. And this is going to appear in the Cosmopolitan magazine in 1906. He's going to charge that 75 of 90 senators were, in effect, agents of the trusts and the railroads. Basically, they were owned. He helped gain public support for the passage of the 17th Amendment for the direct election of senators. And his articles provoked President Roosevelt to label this this genre of journalism mudraking. <clears throat> Sorry. Then there's John Spargo. He wrote The Bitter Cry of the Children in 1906. So he's going to expose all of the abuses of child labor. And he's going to advocate the government-sponsored feeding programs for children. He was also a member of the American Socialist Party. Ray Baker will write Following the Color Line in 1906. And he's going to attack the discrimination and the subjugation of America's 9 million African Americans and their illiteracy due to lack of opportunity. Then there's going to be your activists, so your crusaders, your progressive crusaders. They're going to seek to improve living conditions in cities and labor reforms for women and children. Cities had new opportunities for women, so over a million will join the workforce in in the 1890s. Uh, Women become social workers and secretaries, store clerks, uh, seamstresses, telephone operators, bookkeepers. Anything that was kind of seen as secretarial work will be women's work. That means we'll still work in deplorable conditions, though, like sweatshops, as some places still have today. All right, Jane Adams, that's with two Ds. She was one of the first generation of college-educated women. She's going to grow up in an era where teaching or volunteer work were almost the only permissible occupations for a young woman of the middle class. She founded Hull House in Chicago in 1889, and it was important in establishing the Settlement House movement that became a center of women's activism and social reform. She also helped found the NAACP with W.E.D. Dubois, Uh, Oswald Villard, and Ida B. Wells Barnett. Uh, She was a pacifist, and she condemned war and poverty, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. Now, her feminist and pacifist views led her to being labeled by Teddy Roosevelt in 1970 one of the most dangerous people in America. Seems a little backwards, doesn't it? All right. So this is where I'm going to stop this podcast. I will pick up in the next one with women and children or so women and child labor reform.